Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a jubilant cry. For the Lord the Most High is awe-inspiring, a great king over the whole earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chooses for us our inheritance, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God ascends among shouts of joy, the Lord, with the sound of a ram's horn. Sing praise to God, sing praise. Sing praise to our king, sing praise. Sing a song of wisdom, for God is king of the whole earth. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the peoples have assembled with the people of the God of Abraham. For the leaders of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Psalm 47. Everybody. Welcome to Magnify. I'm Justin Beckley and I'm really excited to dive in with you today on a topic that is absolutely critical in the season that we find ourselves in. Tomorrow, November 3rd, 2020 is what many have called the most consequential election in modern history. Now, whether or not that is true is up to you to decide, but given the political climate we find ourselves in, this election may just be one of the most uncertain one of the most divisive, and one of the most emotional that at least I have yet to experience. I guess it may be best to lead with the thing that I am not going to talk about today. And really that main thing is I'm not going to tell you who you should vote for. Of course, like all of you, I have my own political preferences. Many of you may even know what my political preferences are, but that's not the point of this particular podcast. The purpose of this podcast is not to magnify Trump or Biden, it's to magnify Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, I'm going to talk election today, but my goal is to really drive home one thing, and it is this, Christians. I'm speaking specifically to Christians. We have a responsibility to magnify Jesus in our lives and make him known to the world. Part of doing that is remaining faithful to God, including in our voting. But another part of magnifying Jesus is remaining faithful in our allegiance to his kingdom. Remember, our allegiance is not to the United States of America or Canada or the UK or whatever country you may live in. Our allegiance is to the kingdom of God, and that is the only kingdom that our allegiance is to. And that's why I started today's episode reading from Psalm 47, which loudly proclaims, God is king. Now, does that mean that you can't love your country, that we shouldn't be patriotic? No, of course not. It, it just means that we're looking towards something bigger and our purpose extends beyond just serving our country. Though that is important and admirable, our purpose extends to serving and building up the kingdom of God. Listen to what Jesus says in John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So our purpose is to follow and serve the Lord Jesus. Paul reiterates this in Colossians. Verse 3, uh, 23 to 24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so important to serve the kingdom of God above all else. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first 
his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all else will be given to you. Now, there are a number of ways that we can go about serving the kingdom of God, but in the context of the election, I want to posit this this idea. You can serve the kingdom of God with your vote, if you do so faithfully. What what do I mean by this? Am I saying that Christians are required to vote? No, because we're not, and and, and there's no way in the Bible that says that we're required to vote. Am I saying that Christians should vote only for Republicans or Christians should vote only for Democrats? No, because one party uh, does not lay complete claim to Christianity, nor does one party uh, pl- platform fully represent Christianity's exclusive claim to truth and morality. Republicans don't have exclusive claim to truth and morality. Democrats don't have exclusive train, uh, claim to truth and morality. Only the Christian faith does. That's what we talked about in last week's podcast. Am I saying that voting is enough to serve the kingdom of God? Definitely not. There's much more to serving the kingdom of God than voting. In fact, every time you vote, the odds are you'll be voting for something that contradicts the Christian faith because, again, no one party or candidate fully represents the truth from the Christian perspective. Here's what I am saying, though. When Christians vote, we are exercising our constitutional rights, yes, at least if you are in a country that allows you to vote. But when we vote, we are also showing the world that we are willing to stand up for biblical truth. If we vote faithfully, as in faithfully to God's word, we will cast our vote for justice, for kindness, for truth, and for all the other things that characterize the essence of God. As I said, no one candidate or party is perfect, but what Christians can do is prioritize certain things over others to ensure that we're voting for as close as we can get to justice and truth. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees because in their self-righteousness, they were performatively tithing, which is an important part of the law, but not living out what Jesus calls the quote-unquote more important matters of the law, like justice and faithfulness and mercy. So when voting... We must weight matters of importance, meaning we have to prioritize certain policies or certain stances that politicians have when we vote for them. In the context of this election, I hope that Christians consider the issue of abortion. I know this is a politically sensitive topic, but really, for Christ followers, it should not be. Since Roe v. Wade in 1973, nearly 62 million babies have been aborted. 62 million. And just about 98 to 99% of those abortions were done out of convenience, were done for the purpose of convenience, whether financial convenience or time convenience or career convenience. In 2016, the CDC reported that for every 1,000 births, 186 babies were aborted. 186 out of every 1,000 births. That 
is insane. In 2017, the Guttmacher Institute reported that 862,000 abortions were performed. That's roughly 2,400 babies aborted every single day. For the black community, which abortion disproportionately impacts in New York City, black babies have a higher chance of being aborted than being born. Just think about that for a second. Seriously, a higher chance of being aborted than being born if you're black living in New York City. And we're, we're told by pro-abortion activists that this is justice. This is definitionally not justice. It's definitionally unjust. And this is an extreme injustice that we would have policies, that we would have laws as horrific as our abortion laws. And this is an issue that Christians should care deeply about when voting and one that should be heavily weighted in our consideration for what candidate we vote for. And yes, that means that if your preferred candidate supports and is even calling to expand abortion access, then Christian, I'm talking to Christians specifically, you should deeply, deeply consider this in, 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 in voting for that person. Let's say that your preferred candidate aligns with your economic policy and foreign policy and gun policy and healthcare policy and immigration policy and education policy or whatever other policy that they may support. But let's also say that they support abortion and even better yet, expanded access to abortion. Should you still vote for that candidate? Or better yet, can you vote for that candidate and be faithful to the word of God in doing so? I would argue that you can't. You see, we're morally bounded by the word of God and our faithfulness to God and how we vote. We're bounded by these things. If you disagree with me, that's fine, but take it up with God. I'm not just giving you my political opinion. I'm not a, po a political pundit. I'm not here to give my political opinion. I'm just sharing with you God's truth from his word. We are morally culpable in our voting and things like abortion is not honoring to God. Isaiah says uh, this about such unjust laws as abortion in verse 10, 1 to 2. Woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws to keep the poor from getting a fair trial and to, and to deprive the needy among my people of justice so that widows can be their spoil and they can plunder the fatherless. What will you do on the day of punishment when devastation comes from far away? Who will you run to for help? Where will you leave your wealth? There will be nothing to do except crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. In all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is still raised to strike. To treat a human being as disposable because he or she is not convenient to you which, by the way, is the vast majority of abortions, is not honoring to God. Those babies are made the same way that you and me are. Imago Dei. I introduced this term last week. We are beautifully made in God's image. So we have intrinsic value, not because of our social status or economic status 
or race or ethnicity or gender or any other characteristic that we might attribute to ourselves, we have value because of who God says we are. Our politicians will be held accountable to the divine judge for the legislation that they wrote and passed while in office, just as we will be held accountable for how we voted if we voted in a way that is not faithful and honorable to God. Much of the complaints, kind of shifting gears here, surrounding the current administration, uh, I've noticed have to do with President Trump's character. And that's why one of Joe Biden's primary campaign pitches has to do with restoring the character of the nation. So should we consider character in our weighting, in our prioritization of who to vote for? Well, this past week, John Piper, the famous Christian theologian and, and the chancellor of Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, has been under a pretty significant backlash because of the position he is taking towards voting in 2020. Piper has publicly denounced that he cannot vote for either candidate because he cannot support Trump's character and he cannot support Biden's policies. Now, one could argue that the, the validity of weighting policy and character in such a way is to not vote, um, but I don't really think that's necessary in this instance. As I said before, um, Christians are not required to vote. So if that's what John Piper wants to do, then that's what he wants to do, and that's perfectly fine. Not voting can be honoring and faithful towards God. So so the position that John, John Piper's taking is not anti-Christian. It's not against what the Bible says. He is perfectly in line um, to choose who he wants to vote for or not vote for in this instance. However, in another case, one could argue that policy should be weighted uh, higher than character. Um, and of course, this depends on the scenario, but it's one that it's an argument that I'm more sympathetic to as kind of a, a pragmatist. If a particular politician, though, you know, because it depends on the scenario. If a particular politician has good policy, but he's corrupt, or um, he or she's a money launderer, let's say, and maybe they're involved with organized crime or in, is a pawn of some other kind of higher world power or whatever might be the case, then that should be heavily weighted in our character uh, evaluation because that will often affect the position that uh, individuals hold and, and, and affect his or her policy positions too. But in this case, in the context of 2020, I don't really see the evidence for this. So I don't think that um, the weighting of character and policy in this instance are equal. What I mean is, is I think it's perfectly valid for Christians to weigh policy over character, especially because the options that we are currently being presented with in President Trump and Joe Biden is two, candid two candidates of not so great of character. So in the event that um, that happens, um, and it is happening right now, Christians are completely justified in voting on the basis of policy, weighting policy over um, character. I mentioned earlier that voting can help build up the kingdom of God. Now the final point that I want to make uh, on this is, is this. The way we vote can help build up the kingdom of God because we weigh our options in a way that honors God to the best of what is available. But, that being said, we want to make sure that we do not lose track of our identity in this. If we become Republicans first or Democrats first and Christians second, that's a surefire way of obstructing your, your efforts to build up God's kingdom. What do I mean in this? Well, just practically speaking, politics, especially right now, 
are incredibly divisive. So if we go around presenting a candidate and not Jesus, we're not building up the kingdom of God. We're building up the reign of our preferred political party, and that is not honoring to God. And that is also not faithful to our purpose that God has given us to build up his kingdom. We must stand up for truth, but we do so by standing to magnify Jesus, not to magnify certain politicians. No politician matches the glory and the sweetness and the power of King Jesus. Hebrews 3 shows us just how glorious our King Jesus is. It says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his entire household. And we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. Jesus is our king, and our job as the church of Christ, of which Christ is the head, have an obligation to faithfully serve him in confidence with the hope that he gives us. So the point is, be hesitant to put your confidence and hope in a single political leader or a political party because they will only ever let you down because their reign is temporary. But put your hope in Jesus because his reign is eternal. Revelation eleven fifteen says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. There is no authority in heaven or on earth that trumps the authority of King Jesus. That's why Jesus says, All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not to Donald Trump, not to Joe Biden, not to Barack Obama, not to Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell. All authority has been given to Christ and Christ alone. And because Jesus reigns in the kingdom of God, as it says in Hebrews 12, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So we can look forward to the future and his eternal reign where we will no longer have to worry about any injustice or depression or sickness or political strife or death or anything else because we will be in the everlasting joy of our king in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And when that day comes, remember Philippians 2 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Christians, we do not put our hope in a temporary politics because that is not where our allegiance is. We put our hope in Christ eternal because we have allegiance to his kingdom, because we have the promise of his kingdom. I want to end with a little excerpt from something Ravi Zacharias wrote, which is kind of a letter to Christians struggling with voting during an election. He says this, One of the most confounding aspects as people go to the polls is not merely to listen to the decisions that are made on a variety of issues, but to hear the reasoning behind those decisions. One is left feeling bewildered and sad. It's not so much that the death of God has occurred as the death of reason. 
so handcuffed by momentary gratification and the tunnel vision of the so-called right or left, we have forgotten there is an up and a down. Without understanding the responsibilities of freedom, we lay claim to it as an absolute. God may just be seconding our motion, that we might see the hell of autonomies in collision. Romans chapter 1 clearly points to the landslide that ensues when the absence of wisdom gives way to an abundance of foolishness. Second, there is a circle of influence and bastions of power within which voices completely unknown to the electorate emerge that have the ear of the leader. In the Old Testament, we have the outstanding examples of Joseph and Daniel, who though never in, in the forefront altered history because of their spiritual impact upon the rulers of their day. They were positioned in the inner circle by the sovereign grace of God. Russian history records a dramatic moment in the 19th century. The promiscuous and self-indulgent Tsar had had willfully appointed an archbishop by the name of Galitsyn to take charge of the religious infrastructure so that the Tsar could, with his quote-unquote blessing, uh, shake off all moral restraint. But God had other plans. Galitsyn marvelously came to a point of conversion, committing his life to Christ. A short while later, as Napoleon's armies were uh, putting Moscow to the flames, Galitsyn's spiritual impact upon the Tsar made the difference. The Tsar literally fell on his face before God at a church in St. Petersburg, and God memorably answered his prayer by sending a minor, minor prophet, the winter. Tsar Alexander's momentous conversion saved his nation. Galitsyn was the instrument. The historical landscape is, landscape is punctuated by such conversions of men and women in power through someone lesser known. After all, Proverbs 21.1 says the king's heart and hearts of his appointees is in the land of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Somehow, God manages to place his Esthers and Nehemiahs to stem the tide. We often think of the leader as changing the office and history, but God repeatedly has used history and the office to change the leader. In a volitionally pluralistic society that moves inexorably toward the lowest common denominator on moral issues, perhaps the most unrealistic expectation we foist upon a political leader is to find middle ground in mutually exclusive issues. How comforting to know that God in his ingeniousness may have set distributive power in place to provide the goods that keep leaders on track. That is what may have prompted Churchill's witty remark that democracy is the worst form of government except for all other forms of government. It is pivotal for us to understand that there are many voices and places of power, not just one, and that God can find a yielded heart who can, in turn, make the difference. Finally, one of the greatest lessons Christians can ever learn from an election is that the ultimate government is not established by human effort, but by the will and the wisdom of God. Hebrews 11 reminds us of the great heroes who did not li live to witness the fulfillment of the promise to restore the kingdom. Augustine wept when he heard that Rome had fallen to the barbarians. As they climbed its walls and destro destroying the eternal city, a life-transforming idea invaded his spirit and he penned one of the greatest books ever written, The City of God. There are earthly cities conceived and designed as eternal, whose fallen stones today speak of their temporariness. And there is the City of God that is indestructible and cannot be brought down by human will. Perhaps it is important that every now and then, we all remind ourselves that our citizenship is in heaven. In the end of Christendom, Malcolm Muggeridge stated it powerfully. The world's way of responding to intimations of decay is to engage equally in idiot hopes and idiot despair. On the one hand, some new policy or discovery is confidently expected to put everything to rights. A new fuel, a new drug, detente, world government. On the other, 
some disaster is as confidently expected to prove our undoing. Capitalism will break down. Fuel will run out. Plutonium will lay us low. Atomic waste will kill us off. Overpopulation will suffocate us, or alternatively, a declining birth rate will put us more surely at the mercy of our enemies. In Christian terms, such hopes and fears are equally beside the point. As Christians, we know that here we have no continuing city, that crowns roll in the dust and every earthly kingdom must sometimes flounder. Whereas we acknowledge a king, men did not crown and cannot dethrone. As we are citizens of a city of God, they did not build and cannot destroy. Thus the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, living in a society as depraved and desolate as ours. Their games, like our television, specialize in spectacles of violence and eroticism. Paul exhorted them to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in God's work, to concern themselves with the things that are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It was in the breakdown of Rome that Christendom was born. Now in the breakdown of Christendom, there are the same requirements and the same possibilities to eschew the fantasy of a disintegrating world and seek the reality of what is not seen and eternal, the reality of Christ. The Christian recognizes that while the present may point to the eternal, our optimism or dismay can never be entirely controlled by the present. For we seek a city whose builder and maker is God.